In Luke 5, Jesus finds Simon, James, and John fishing because, well, they were fishermen. Now, in those days, all Jewish boys went to school to memorize the Torah. That's right, the first five books of the Bible. And the best of the best would move on to be rabbis. So, the fact that these were actually fishermen tells us that they were not considered to be best of the best. Instead, they would learn the craft of their parents, which in this case was fishing. Now also, I thought this was interesting. I found that there were three different methods for fishing back then. The first is casting a net, where they would stand on the bank or wade in the water. Then what they would do is they would throw the net in the water in front of them. It fell on the shape of a ring, and as the weights dropped it down, the net took the shape of a dome and enclosed in the fish. The next method was the dragnet, usually operated by boats. The dragnet was used in herring and salmon fishing with floats marking the location of the submerged nets. Now the third method was using hooks. Fish were actually speared on the Mediterranean coast, uh, being attracted to the surface by a moving torch. So as a result, night fishing was actually very common, especially in the Sea of Galilee. So there you go, a little bit about fishermen, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness and for the way you look out for us and for your protection and for your mercy and for your power. Father, life is hard, but you are good and you continue to call out to us. You continue to remind us that you've got us. You continue to remind us always that we're forgiven, Lord. And for those gifts that you give, it's why we're here tonight and it's why we worship you and it's why we thank you for all that you are. So our prayer today is in the midst of life that we would remember that you, we would remember that you've got us, that we would remember that we're forgiven, that we, you, we would remember that you're there and buffeted up by those gifts and that forgiveness that you give. We would have joy even in the midst of life. And we pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So we're picking up in chapter 4, verse 38, which is where we are. And if you remember from last week, Jesus is um, going through a series of events here that is really giving a testimony for who he is. In the very beginning of the Gospels, he does this and did this in Mark, did this in Matthew. But so far, we've got the testimony of John the Baptist saying that Jesus was who? The Messiah, the Christ, the one is to come. And then we have, we have God's testimony of Jesus where? At his baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then you got the Satan's testimony saying, if you are the son of God, do all these different things. And he knew he was the son of God. And so he's tempting him. And then you got the testimony of God's word over and over and over. And then you got the demon's testimony that, that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the holy one of God. And then you got the testimonies of the miracles themselves. He's doing all this miraculous stuff, healing all sorts of different people. Then you got this power over demons. He's casting them out with cries that he is the son of God. And it just brings us to verse 38. And it says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. It would be Simon Peter. Peter that we know very well. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Disciples have been, well, at least some people have been with Jesus for a while, and, and he ended up at Peter's house with his mom being real sick, and they just watched him heal all these people. They just watched demons come out of him. They weren't yet disciples, but they were amazed at the ministry that he was doing. Could this be the one? It seemed like he was the one. 
And so he sees Peter's mother-in-law, and they're actually, hey, could you make her well? You've just healed all these people. And Jesus took compassion on the mother and rebuked the, rebuked the, the unhealth, rebuked the sickness, the fever within her, and immediately left. And she rose and began to serve him. Kind of an interesting thing, he rebuked the fever. I never quite think about doing that when I'm not feeling well. But, he, but there's something about, you know, God created this world and, and he didn't create sickness. Sickness is part of the fall, right? He didn't create disease. Disease is part of the fall. He, he didn't create a lot of the just the bad stuff of this life because evil is not from God, it's from Satan, right? It's from the fall, it's from rebellion, it's from all the stuff that we've made it along the way. And it's interesting that Instead of just casting it out like he did in other places, there's a rebuking of it. Almost to say, I don't know if Satan's involved here, but the reality is he rebuked the, the fever, and just like the demons, it fled from him. And it wasn't like they made the rest of the party about mom. Hey, mom's doing good. Hey, she's just been healed. It wasn't about mom. Mom got up and started serving everybody. And, and I like that in this sense, that once impacted by the grace of God, God calls us to go and be disciples. And I don't know exactly where Peter's mom was at this sense, but she had to sense that something incredible just happened. And her first instinct was to serve the one who healed her. And so she went about her business and she took care of everybody and she did what she was able to do, using every part of her to glorify this guy who just, who just healed her from the sickness. I, I wish we would always have that impact. You know, you watch people become Christians and, and there's just an excitement about the Lord when they first come to know him. I don't know if you've ever known one. It, it, isn't that sad? Have you ever known? We should know tons of them. But the reality is, if you've ever known somebody who's come to faith, there is just palatable excitement. Their lives have been changed. They'll never look at the world again in the same way. He forgave them. They're going to heaven. God's got them in the midst of life, and that's different than the life they had been living for so long. It's just powerful. And then they get into church, and we train them not to act like that anymore. You know, just, you know, you know, just take it the way it comes. You know, we're forgiven. Yay, you know. And, and, and some of that joy tends to go away over time. It shouldn't, but it tends to go away. That excitement, and it takes like a new experience in life to us, for us to re-remember just how amazing God is. How thankful we are that we're forgiven. How thankful we are that he's got us. This lady seems to have come to faith or at least been overpowered by the experience and she served him with joy. That should be the response of all of us coming out of church on a Sunday night, right? Or, or coming out of a Bible study during the week. We should be blown away again because we remember just how incredible he is, just how he's changed our lives, saved our lives from what it was. Got a question here. <clears throat> if God didn't create disease and illness and other such things that are a result of the downfall, who did? I know they were a result of the downfall and it wasn't the way God had planned it, but if God didn't create it, who did? Well, God didn't create death, um, but it was a consequence of the fall, wasn't it? All the things that, um, so this is what original sin is. Original sin enters the world and the brokenness of mankind began. Our world doesn't operate in the same way it did. It's broken. And as a result, we are broken and we get diseases and we get sicknesses and we get problems as we go through life. People sin against us and us against them. The world as itself doesn't operate the right way because you got hurricanes and flooding and, and famines and it wasn't the way he created it at the beginning. 
we entered into some new phase when original sin took place. And there are difficulties in this world as a result of that. You wonder why bad things happen to good people. Part of it's original sin. The rest is us. We sin against them or they sin against us. But God is not the author of evil. Nowhere in Scripture does he claim credit for what is evil. Satan does. We do. But so that's part of the answer to that question. Um, Also, another interesting thing is with... Just the way that the the Pharisees and and the Jewish people looked at sickness is that it was always a consequence of sin. Part of that original fall, right? And they believed that if you were sick or you got a sickness, it was in punishment for something that you did. And what did you need first and foremost if you were sick? For them, it was the forgiveness of God. You needed to be made right with God so that he could then heal your outward experience as well. Can you imagine how scary that must have been? You get sick and all of a sudden, not only are you sick, but you're alienated from the one that can help you. If you've ever read through Job, you get a sense of that, right? But Job just refused to believe that. He didn't do anything wrong, or at least he thought, I'm sure he did things wrong, but nothing that was worthy of this, right? So he kept on calling God, God, I don't know what I did, but I can't imagine it's this. And he kept calling out to God. He kept seeking the one that was slaying him. He talked about it in such terms. He kept hoping in the one that would one day forgive and restore and make new. And so that was a whole theology that they had in terms of sickness. And as a result of that, Jesus looks at this. He rebukes the fever and casts out, cast out the fever and, and makes her whole again. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid hands on every single one of them and he healed them. This is a part that I usually skip over, but as the sun was setting, it was the Sabbath, right? And he had to wait until sun set for Sabbath to be done. The second Sabbath was done, guess what? Tons and tons of people started flooding toward Jesus. It was illegal on the Sabbath to carry a sick person, right? So if you couldn't walk yourself, you weren't around Jesus. So when the sun was setting, they started making their way toward Jesus so that he could heal. And, and so think about that, sun setting, when sun's setting here, what are you, you guys are thinking about bed or at least reclining in a couch, you know, and kind of easing back from a long day, and Jesus had a long day. But everybody who came, Jesus had a compassion that was extraordinary, and he healed every single one of them. In our sinfulness, sometimes we're like, you know, I'll do the first hundred, but then after that, you know, we got to close it down. I got to go to sleep. But not Jesus. Every single one that came. It gives us a picture of God a little bit, doesn't it? Everybody's welcome. He cares about everybody. He doesn't turn away anyone. He came to seek and to save the lost, every single one that's lost, so that he can heal, so that he can save, so that he can renew. He never turns us away. Great is the compassion of God. And Jesus shows that in a powerful way. And he laid his hands on every single one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak anymore because they knew he was the Christ. See, the more people have found out that he was the Christ, or at least believed in that, it wasn't just the power to heal and all that stuff that would be crowding around him. Everybody would be crowding around him. And he still had work to do. He still had things that he needed to accomplish. It was either that or he was a genius psychologist and he just said, if I tell them don't say anything, maybe they'll tell everybody. You know, I'm guessing it's the former. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. 
And so again, the crowds were so many that they wanted to keep him there. Hey, if you had a guy that could heal every sickness, cast out every demon, was an incredible preacher and teacher, and you love listening to him, wouldn't you want him to stay? It's also a time that they were looking toward a Messiah. Somebody that some of the zealots could rally behind and make king. But Jesus didn't come to be a, a great healer or a great magician, right, of miraculous things. He came to be the savior of the world and he had other stuff he needed to do. So he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gessenar, which is the lake of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon Peter's again, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets, let, let, let your nets out for a catch." And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let out the nets. So Peter's a fisherman and Jesus is a carpenter. Not only the same, you know, profession, right? They had been out all night. When's the best time to catch fish? Night, night. All night caught nothing. I mean, nothing. These guys were experienced fishermen. They're dead tired. And then after an evening of being dead tired, they come and listen to a long sermon, right? Jesus was talking a long time. They had just cleaned up everything. They just cleaned the nets. It was time to go home. They needed a nap, right? But Jesus says, hey, let's put out into deep, deeper water and lay down the nets and, you know, let's see if we can catch some fish. And I love, I love Peter's response. He calls him, he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about. We just tried this. I mean, but at your word, I will let down the nets. I don't know if Peter yet believed in the Lord, okay? He certainly respected a lot of stuff that he saw. He was certainly curious about everything that was going down. He thought maybe he was the Messiah, but he had not yet confessed, Right? And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled the other partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. I think it's safe to say that this was the largest catch they'd ever been a part of. Two boats almost sinking because of the haul that they just took in. And you'd think Peter would be happy. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. All of a sudden, master, you don't know what you're talking about is, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, oh Lord. You see, for some reason, this caught Peter. This was in Peter's wheelhouse of expertise. He knew what they just experienced was impossible. Nothing like it had ever been seen. It was impossible. He did something. Jesus did something that he knew there was no other way to explain it except that God intervened. And all of a sudden, Peter believed. And he came into the presence of God. And what happens when we come into the presence of God? All of a sudden, we're very aware of how imperfect we are. I've given illustrations of this, uh, but have you guys ever seen the movie Anger Management? Anybody? Way back in the day? 
I'm not supposed to like, but it's hilarious, right? It's just a hilarious movie. And so Beth and I, we loved it. And, and, we, and uh, we were newly married, you know, it was really cool. My in-laws, they were coming to our house. We had a house. I was so excited. My, my, my wife, me, my host, and my in-laws, this is so great. And we sit down and we start watching Anger Management. And all of a sudden, because I'm a pastor right at this point, I, I realize how much swearing is in this movie. I did not know there was so much swearing in this movie. And did you know there's sexual innuendo in that movie as well? And I was horrified. I wanted to crawl under the couch because I was sure they were judging me the entire time, saying, I can't believe my son-in-law is watching this movie. He's supposed to be a pastor. What's going on? Now, my in-laws are far from being God, right? But when you come into the holy presence of God, all of a sudden you're very aware of your imperfection before him. And you would cry out like the prophets of old and like Peter, get away from me. I'm a sinful person. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve your grace. I'm pretty sure I just deserve your punishment. And that is our state before God without Jesus. But Jesus, in his compassion, he just says this, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. It's an interesting thing. I skipped a, a verse there, and I'll go back to it. But Jesus' response to Peter is, don't be afraid. I got gotcha. you. I, I got a whole new purpose for you, buddy. And it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be fun, and it's going to be hard, too. But I've got a whole new purpose for you. Don't be afraid. I've got gotcha. you. And upon his resurrection, isn't that what God says to you in the midst of your sin? Don't be afraid. I've forgiven you. I've got you. It is as if you've never sinned. We're good. We're going to go on a new purpose. It's a new beginning. It's a new start. Let's get ready. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And also were with him James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And then Jesus shares that sentence, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. It's an interesting thing when you think about James, John, and Peter. They ended up being his central core, didn't they? He had the 12 disciples, but they seemed to be in a spot of special relationship with him. These were the guys that saw this initial kind of miracle after the healings and stuff. They were the ones that went up to the mountain of transfiguration, right? And they saw Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. I mean, they saw people that were dead talking to their Lord, pillars of Israel talking to their Lord. They're the ones that he invited into the garden. Of course, they didn't stay awake, but they were part of that, that group, right? All the way through, they had this special relationship with Jesus. All the way through, they were the ones that trusted in Christ just completely because of what they had seen and heard. And God used every single one of them in powerful ways. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Whoops. Back, to, I got one more question. Does original sin prevent us from coming to Christ? I guess not, because, well, let me put it this way. Uh, in Scripture, there is a crazy kind of logic, but it is always true, and it's taught from beginning to end. If we are saved, it's because of Christ, drawing us through his Spirit to him. And original sin can't keep us being, from being drawn to the Spirit of God. He basically lassos us, takes us in, you know, I don't know. But he draws us to him. Nobody can come to faith except through Jesus Christ. That's what scripture says. 
I know there's this theology of today that says, I decided, but you decide, right, after Christ gets a hold of your heart and shows you just how amazing he is. You confess Christ as Lord, and, and then you decide. That's how that actually works. But it's Christ drawing you, okay? Now, the other part of this logic is it is our fault 100% if we're lost, right? Because it just takes one sin, and all of us are sinful, all of us. No one is righteous before God, not one, Paul says. And so the reality is that we own our own destruction. We're the ones that say no to Christ. We're the ones that say no to his forgiveness. We're the ones that run the other way when he says, follow me. We earn, we deserve, that's the reality of life, is we deserve our own punishment from God. And yet, despite that, earning that, right, God sends us Jesus, And Jesus comes and he says, all those who are not perfect, right? But all those who will confess that I am their Lord, believe in me and are forgiven, right? Is that really hard? Do we have to climb to the top of the highest mountain to be forgiven? Do we have to swim across, I don't know, the ocean to do it? You know, no, I mean, those would be feats maybe worth something. But he says, just believe in my son and I will forgive you based on that based on you trusting that I love you, based on you trusting that you're forgiven, based on you trusting that my son's death was sufficient, I will give you heaven. I will give you eternity. I will give you no sorrow, no crying, no pain. I will give you life everlasting in ways that you cannot imagine. Just believe in my son. And it's yours. All of it, it's just yours. It's an incredible gift. And the only way that you don't receive it is by not believing. It's by faith that we are saved. There was a parable in the New Testament too. Jesus is talking about a big party and he wants all these people to come and so he invites them, right? And, and they're like, well, oh, I don't, I'm going to paraphrase. I got a new car, I need to test it out. You know, I just, you know, bought this lot over here. I want to go check it out. And doing my hair, so I don't think I can make it. You know, all these excuses that they had, right? And so they couldn't come. And so the king said, well, I don't want to invite them anymore. And so we're not invited. They can't come in. They can't come and party at all. You could just experience a king saying that. And then he says, go and find everybody else and invite them in. And they can come to my party. And he goes through this whole thing and, and, and he says this at the end. He says, many are invited. The whole world's invited to know Jesus. The whole world. He died for all. Everybody can come to Jesus. There is nothing stopping them except for ourselves. But few are chosen. And when God chooses you, he claims you as his. And how does he choose you? I don't know how that happens, but I know what it looks like. It looks like us coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It looks like us clinging to him as we walk through life. It looks like us trusting him even when it's hard. It looks like peace, joy, comfort, all those different things. Guys, you're the elect today. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Am I just an encouragement? Never give it away. You don't have to. Nobody can take it away from you. Satan can't take it away from you. The world can't take it away from you. Nobody can take it away from you. Only you can give it away. Don't do it. You are the elect of God. You are the chosen of God. Rejoice today in that truth. And then go out and share with everybody about Jesus so that all that are called can be claimed. So that all who receive his truth will be brought into his house. But so that heaven's full. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just a cool thing. But everybody can come. So that's my answer to that. Okay, we're moving on. Uh, chapter five. 
I want to keep uh, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. I love the stories. It says while he was in one of the cities, it's kind of an interesting statement there because the leper was never supposed to go into the city so maybe he was on the outskirts of the city. We don't know, but it says in the city. So somehow this leper had braved a little bit of a, you know, faux pas, right? By going into the city when he was unclean. And lepers, nobody wanted to be around lepers. And the thing that you were supposed to do as a leper is you were supposed to cry out as you walked, unclean, unclean. In other words, get away from me. Talk about a social stigma. That's horrible, right? But that's what they were supposed to do so that nobody would get around them. Nobody would catch their disease. That was the reality. They weren't supposed to be in the city, not even close. But here Jesus was there. And he says, he knew because of all the other healings, it seems, that Jesus had the power to heal. He just didn't know if he'd want to. So he says, if you will, can you make me clean? In other words, can you heal me from this social stigma from this disease, from this thing that making me unclean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and you notice it here, here it says he touched him. Nobody touched the leper. Probably the first time in years this man had been touched by anybody. I, I don't know. You guys ever need a hug? Do you ever need some social contact? Pat on the back, good job or whatever? It's hard. Only another leper could touch him in any way. And Jesus I mean, nobody touched the leper. They were afraid they were going to get whatever it was. And Jesus, in his compassion and in his love, he reached out and he touched the man and he says, be clean, or I will be clean. And immediately upon the power of God, the leprosy left. And he charged them, don't tell anybody, you know, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. In other words, I didn't come to abolish the law. I want you to go back through the system that we have, right? If you're cleansed, you go show the priest and they say you're clean and you can go back to regular society. That's the way it was supposed to go. That's, you know, what I wrote in the book, you know, way back in the day. And so he says, go do that. Just don't, you know, tell them where he got healed. <laughs> but... Now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of his infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So he'd go outside the cities, and he'd just find time alone so that he could reconnect with his father. And it's kind of an interesting thing because it's the Trinity, right? God and the, and the Son, the Father and the Son are one, and yet somehow in the midst of this time, there was a connectivity that was through prayer that was powerful and that was important to Jesus, and, that, and often he would go and do that. Was it just a modeling for us? I don't think, but I think he found strengthening by going to the Father, and so should we. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. That's significant. It means that they had heard about Jesus. They'd heard about some of the things that were going on, and they wanted to make sure that Jesus was on the up and up, that Jesus was, you know, not doing any damage to the Jewish faith, that he wasn't leading people astray. They had gotten wind that maybe he was claiming to be the Messiah. And so they came to listen to the guy to see if he was doing anything wrong. And behold, some of them, men, were bringing on, a, bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. 
I want you to get a picture of this. So you're all sitting in here. It's nice and, and pretty. And all of a sudden, somebody starts digging through the roof. Now, what happens when somebody starts digging through the roof? Is there any dust or dirt that starts to fall? Now, is that a little bit of an inconvenience to some of you? I mean, some of you are getting some chunks dumped on you. You know, so one of the pieces of plaster just falls right next to you. You think that would have hurt if it hit me. And then, but everybody's covered with dust. It's kind of hard to see in here because of everything that's going down. And all of a sudden, the bed comes right down before us in front of Jesus. It's a little unsettling. It's not the way you're going to go. The owner of the house is freaking out, right? What's happening, you know? The reason they got up on the roof is because usually there was a staircase on the exterior of the house that allowed them to get up on the roof where they'd often, you know, I'm sure have evening meals and different things like that, enjoying the day. All of a sudden, this bed comes down right before Jesus. And it's because these guys believed in Jesus. That's the deal. They couldn't get in through the door. The place was packed. But they needed to see Jesus. Their buddy needed to see Jesus. It was the only way that he was going to be healed. I don't know about the urgency. I don't know what caused them to not wait out until Jesus came out or what the deal was. But there was an urgency with them. Jesus could heal and they needed their buddy to get to him. Man, it's good to have friends like that, isn't it? Friends that care so much about you, they'll do anything. I mean, seriously, somebody does that, they're facing, you know, maybe going to jail, right? right? It, they're willing to face anything to get their buddy healed. They don't know what Jesus' response is going to be either. They just know that he's the one that can do something about it. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And remember, we talked about how they viewed sickness, paralysis all the more, they believed it was a consequence to something the guy had done, some sin that he had committed. It was a sin that was too alienating him a little bit from God, right? Because he couldn't go to God because this was punishment for something he had done. You have to imagine he confessed sin over and over and over, and yet he was still sick. He had to be at a crisis point in his faith, but he believed in Jesus. Man, your sins are forgiven you. He's now been reconnected with his father. He's now been forgiven of his sins. There is now hope. There is now a way forward. God had given him everything in this. But the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're absolutely right. They just didn't get that, you know, Jesus was God. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. So they weren't dumb enough to actually say it out loud, not with the guy right there, right? But he perceived their thoughts, and he says, why do you question your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or say, rise and walk? Which is harder? Forgive sins, isn't it? I use an example of society. In our society, they were so busy trying to fix the exterior of people, we don't seem to bother with the interior. Why? Because we don't know how to fix the interior of people. I mean, there's psychologists and psychiatrists all across this country that are booked full of people trying to deal with their interior, and it's just hard. It's always easier fixing the exterior. But Jesus goes on. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen some extraordinary things today. Guys, my encouragement as you, as you just go through life is, 
you would see the extraordinary in Jesus. That you would see that he is the God of the impossible. Because he forgives sins in a way that is palatable, in a way that can free us from our past. That doesn't mean that we haven't done those things. It doesn't mean that if we can make them better, we shouldn't make them better. But it, doesn't, but it does mean we don't have to keep paying for stuff that's now been forgiven. And that frees us to move forward in life, dealing with things as they come, trying to fix things, trying to be a better person, trying to do things that are different, trying to trust the Lord more with our life so we can experience more of the good stuff, the, the peace, the forgiveness, the joy. Jesus is extraordinary in not just freeing you from the past, but giving you strength to deal with the now. Because life is so hard and without Christ, without knowing he's by your side, without knowing that he's infusing you with power and energy to deal with life as it comes, without the power of forgiveness to free you from the past, without the, all this, the hope that he gives, that this isn't as good as it gets. We all look forward toward a home in heaven where it is awesome. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Place that promises to be perfect in every way. Just imagine this world without sin, without people being so nasty to each other, without people being so mean and sinful toward each other. Wouldn't it be different? It would be extraordinary. God gives us a promise of the extraordinary every single day. We just need to remember. We need to remember always that he's got us, that we're loved, and that we're forgiven by an amazing God. All God's people said, amen. Let me pray. God, we love you so much and we thank you for being so extraordinary. We thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that he won for us. We thank you for being yours. And I say that, Lord, not just because of heaven, but because we need you every day in this life. We need you to remind us that there's better days ahead. We need to be reminded that there's always strength found in you. We need to be remembered that we're forgiven because we want to experience that freedom and that peace and that strength and that comfort and that hope that you talk about. Father, help us more and more through your spirit. Send it to us in power. Help us trust you more as we walk through life. Father, we thank you for Jesus and all God's people said, amen.